Hello again, dear listener. This is the start of the show. Welcome to Find a Previously Recorded Evening of Storytelling and Otherwise. This episode took place on July 29, 2019 at the Lido here in Vancouver, which is on the traditional ancestral and ancestral territory of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh peoples. You'll be hearing from some of the excellent lineup of writers and comedians we had that night, including Ava Jafe, Emily Davidson, Taryn Kootenhayu, and Carly Baker. And throughout the episode, you'll hear music from Mr. Merlot, who you can find on iTunes and Bandcamp. The song we've started the show with is called Catch a Feeling from their most recent album, City Sex, Volume 2. I'm your host, Cole Nowicki. To find out more about our upcoming live shows, please visit us at afineshow.com or follow us on the social medias at afineshow. Okay, let's get this thing going. Enjoy the show. Up first is Aiden Chafe. Aiden is the author of the poetry collection Short Histories of Light, which is long listed for the 2019 Gerald Lampert Memorial Award. His poems have been published in a variety of literary journals in Canada and the U.S. Here's Aiden. Hi, guys. Um, um, yeah, so I, I'm a poet, so that's, that's, uh, that's the sad news. I'll try to I'll try to make it better from from here. Um, so this first poem, I, I, it's about uh, traitors. Um, watching a lot of Netflix, and you see a lot of people get stabbed in the back. And then I decided to write a poem about it. It's called Traitor Spotting. If our messenger arrives and your camp rode off through the woods in another direction. If they capture you and the first thing you tell them is the truth. If you outrun the wolf, but your heart overcomes you. If your legend eludes you, eclipsed by the embers reflected in your lens. If you feel a terror reverberate in your howl. If you hear a match light in your conscience. If at dawn you lead the ambush, thrust the blade, witness the blood in the bowl of my unarmed hand. If tonight your dreams are haunted by the six feet between us. Uh, this next poem, uh, I was struggling to finish this collection, and I uh, looked up kind of new different types of poetic forms. So for all of you nerds out there, uh, this is a glossa or glossa, and it, uh, it incorporates lines from the Dark Knight. That's the fun part. Anatomy of Chaos. A boy bleeds out from a man loaded with fear and the Second Amendment. A girl runs until she hurts more from calluses on her feet than the memory of her father's hands. Families swell into airplanes as home spends Ramadan in shrapnel showers, mortar gnawing its bones. Some men just want to watch the world burn. I catch an escalator on the news chewing a woman whole in front of her children. Waves of aquatic assassins cascade into villages. Sirens of flames wipe out arboreal compounds. In high school, I read about a little boy from New Mexico descending the heavens like a dark angel, tattooing a city's flesh into concrete. Madness is like gravity. All it needs is a little push. Hours drive from my town, God's disciples whipped children of the forest in front of crowds of crying cedars. 
I want to know what secrets the cotton fields whispered to the winds of Mississippi. Rain tries to interrupt Armageddon. Horrors, even nightmares, won't reflect back to us. These civilized people, they'll eat each other. Do scientists determine growth when Earth produces cultures of unrecorded shame? Best kept covered in the ground. Stay the mind's blinds. Be sure not to awaken the heart. Wounded can't keep sutures shut. The world unravels well. Factories at a time. Destined to do this forever. Um, I'll read another kind of depressing one, then I'll move on to something funny. Ignoring presence of mind. You are a constellation of undiscovered light. I'm a protagonist pulling myself out from the plot. We are bathtubs of humor and antidepressants, proud graduates of drowning school. Last night I woke the TV and he kept screaming at me. When cell phone chimed in, you were too scared to soothe her to sleep. Medication hushed us into, into comas. Uh, friends keep laughing, only we can't see why. When I edit these rough drafts of rough days, I sand the words with your embrace. Today I'm attempting my own skin. My wrists keep knocking on my door. But I've been a good boy, trying so hard not to answer. Um, thank you. Uh, this poem's called Mike, and it's got a bit of a, I think it's kind of funny. Not as funny as those jokes, though. Mike. When I turned 16, my parents said I didn't have to believe in their God anymore, but there was still someone out there greater than me. In high school, Mike was the greatest. I told my parents I worshipped Mike. I told them I prayed to Mike every day. Thank you. I'll just read two more poems. These are newish poems. Um, as, as a retired Catholic, I, um, I always kind of have an axe to grind, so here's another one. Holes. We fill in the holes with a bird's wing or a soldier's lung, stand mouth agape looking at the gap in the sky. What hell we found here hauled in overnight to take away our dreams, the hole we dropped ourselves into. This whole body does not remain. What holy rots in us now? What war weaves into us worse than reason? What militaristic monster rises? Whose faith of a foreign kind? What father peddles his son out for parlor tricks? What war incites children to see, believing the waters will part? What's holier than a man bearing a crown of explosives, mouth full of missing teeth, driving his holy through the heart of the next home? What's holier than a veil of limbs on the side of a holy war? What's holy now? What's holy? Um, I'll leave with a, a, a bit of a change of pace. Um, thank you. This is, this is a local poem. Um, it's a housing crisis poem. Drive, driving through Kitsilano. I, I want to know how much the passing tree is charging for its angle of shade. A selfie beneath its twisted embrace. Whether my last paycheck could cover a blade of leaf, a sampling of sap. I worry a neighborhood toll booth is stationed around the bend, waiting to collect luxury tax. I remember building a tree fort with Clayton behind his parents' fenced-in yard out of plywood his father stole home from work. 
We spent a summer swinging hammers to semblance that nine-year-old conception of architectural symmetry. The stain of each nail's rust-red skin disappearing until a metal circle remained. I bled from one, the samurai of the bunch, thrusting its sharp head out of a pile of waterlogged wood. Now, 25 years later, I wonder if the fort's still there, whether someone's put it up on the market, waiting for me with my middle-class wage to come home. Thank you very much. Next up is Emily Davidson. Emily is a writer from St. John, New Brunswick, who has spent the last 10 years living in Vancouver. Her poetry and fiction have appeared in publications across the country, and her first full-length collection, Lift, was published this spring with Thistledown Press. Emily holds an MFA in creative writing from the University of British Columbia and works as an editor for a content marketing agency. Here's Emily. Good evening. Hey, uh, thanks for having me. I'm really pumped to be here. Uh, it's great to be reading to you from this book. Um, it took seven years to find it a home, so it still feels like a treat to be reading from it. Um, as Cole mentioned, I am a New Brunswicker by birth, and so uh, Vancouver still feels pretty phenomenal to me. Um, and I thought I'd start off by reading a poem about home. Uh, I'm from St. John, which is a beautiful place and quite industrial, so also sort of smelly. And uh, this is a poem about that. Um, also, don't feel like you need to applaud in between, because I didn't time out for that. So just hold it to the end. <laughs> my hometown is an incontinent dog I've spent all my life walking. Of mixed ancestry, it lies low to the ground in the haze of its own breath. Old clogged with gray and clumps of ice, it is familiar with the sorrow of not knowing what to chase. In the spring thaw when I visit, it pricks up its ears from its slump on the porch, and we remember how bright and quick we once were. I don't know if you have had the opportunity to move here from somewhere else, but I think I spent my first two years in Vancouver just with my mouth open, because it's so beautiful and lush and ridiculous. Um, and so this is a poem about that. Vancouver is the prom queen. More beautiful than any other place you'll ever live. She waves at you across the room, her cherry blossom dress, her bikeable curves. She is an expensive date. The two of you might flirt of an evening, her seawall shoulders cresting her beaches, the smell of donuts and pine. But by tomorrow, she will remember that you squat peed in your neighbor's azaleas. <laughs> that you are from somewhere plebeian like Moncton, that you've never done the grouse grind. <laughs> she will deduce the number of your roommates, the number of times you've had to decide between rent and food, and she will lift an eyebrow if you call to her on the street. If she likes you even a little, Vancouver isn't telling. <laughs> All right, it's on you. Uh, this is just a weird poem about being an urbanite. No one makes decisions in this city. Whether or not to call an ambulance, register for culinary school, rent an apartment, 
And then it's too late and we've stifled, gotten food poisoning, stayed precisely where we started. Consumption is not a decision, but we practice just in case. Because you know that particular dress, those organic tomatoes, these throw pillows, might be the answer to world hunger, Aunt Jane's colon cancer, or why we went to prom alone. Going out is not a decision, but a compulsion. We are full of wit, full of light bulb teeth, of radiant water and sound. Before tiredness decides us back to small houses, closed doors, jars of expired mayonnaise. All right, this is a poem about virginity. <laughs> Nobody does this on purpose. One, I have been keeping my virginity like the special occasion dishes, the company tablecloth, a pair of women's gloves that button at the wrist. It is important at this stage in the game to forget the subtle tarnish of the early 20s and go moldering on fortitudinously. Two. I do this on purpose. Nobody does this on purpose. Three, there are polar bears swept away on ice floes, disembarking in downtown St. John's to wander past the jelly bean houses and bellow confusion at the locals. I think the bears are urban myth, but it is something to be endangered. It is something to be bright white and monstrous. Uh, the third section of the book has all the relationship poems in it. If you like that stuff, you can skip right to there. Um, <laughs> this is a poem about waiting for your person. It's called Slow Cooker. You won't know what I've imagined in your absence, how good I've been, how my mind has not wandered much, how I've folded fitted sheets, told the truth to my therapist, called my parents, supported appropriate charities, not too often dreamed of your tongue, your hands, the bellows-like heat of you. How good I've been. See how many pairs of shoes in a row, how many books read and reread, how many soups laid up after hours in the crock pot, steeping, fulsome, how the meat has softened, the flavor now a body of its own. This is a poem about fertility. Species watch list. At 32, my uterus was added to the species watch list. <laughs> Not endangered, but no longer least concern. Vulnerable like big eye tuna, forest elephants, dugongs. Common enough, sightings regular, habitat receding. Still young, this genus can be found in the wild, but they count the sheddings now, down a diminishing resource. Did someone shoot the final passenger pigeon and wonder, will I miss this? And was their lawn terribly quiet, free of inconvenience? And did they marvel at the inexorable march of time? Of course not. There are so many birds, 
This one makes no difference. I have uh, two pieces I'll leave you with. Um, this piece came out of, I don't know if anyone saw, there was a short film on the New York Times website, and it was a clip of all of these Danish people deciding whether or not to jump off a high dive. And um, it's shot pretty close into the diving board, and there's something really visceral about it. There's no music, and you're literally, it's 10 minutes of watching people decide whether or not to jump. Um, and it kind of weirded me out, and I wrote this poem about it. <laughs> 10 meter tower. In subtitles. If you fall, I'll fall as well, Frida. Love at first height. Your heart races. The moment, the moment, the leaving, a step. How we all know. Two men in slow motion airborne never impact. Your heart races. Two muscled friends have an argument. Listen, a 70-year-old woman jumped, but not me. Everyone looks down, everyone. An athletic blonde goes over backwards, head first, turns in the air. Your heart races. They talk to themselves. We talk to ourselves. Okay, go, come on. A long man decides it's impossible. The 70-year-old woman in her blue suit looks over the edge, takes a moment to grip her knees and, no, I don't have the guts, goes to the stairs, stops, grips her knees, breathes, goes back to the edge, drops. Your heart races. <laughs> I'm gonna leave you with a new piece. Um, it's a little Poetry 101, but what I like about it is that it started out as an apology and then it wasn't. <laughs> <laughs> to whatever wind has blown me from the path of my lover, to the face in the mirror, to the embarrassment that haunts the weak hours of mourning, to the stillborn novel, to the apologies made too early, the self a stuffed envelope. To my father, to my published works, to the girls in elementary and our mutual cruelties, to my athletic abilities, to the dignified line before me, to my excellent taste in X's, to my disbelief, to the time that went by me while I failed to grasp and claw I have but one defense. I will be the small bird singing long after night has fallen. Thanks very much. Up next is Taryn Kooten. Hey you. Taryn's a Denae Salin and Stony Nakoda multidisciplinary artist from Treaty 6 territory in Alberta. He currently pays rent in Vancouver on the unceded and unsurrendered territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh peoples. He has written and co-written over six plays and one screenplay since graduating from Catalano University's Acting for Stage and Screen program in 2015. He is signed with Premier Talent Management and is a member of Full Circle's First Nation Performance Ensemble. Taryn has been awarded Star to Watch at the Whistler Film Festival in 2018 and also Sam Payne's Most Promising Newcomer Award at the Jesse Theatre Awards in 2019. He's taking a stab at comedy through making memes, doing stand-up, and writing comedic stories. Here's Taryn. 
Thank you. How you guys doing today? That bio feels like a resume, kind of. It's kind of weird. Um, yeah. So I'm kind of new to this like stand-up comedy thing, and uh, usually you like put your jokes down on like a book, but I kind of like write the joke out, and it's like I'm always like, the fuck did I just write? <laughs> um, yeah. Taren Kootenail, Thue Chok Tue Hotzi Dene Sonslina Hesli. Uh, I said, my name's Taryn Kootenayo, and I'm Dene Sontlina from Cold Lake, and uh, I asked you all for some money. <laughs> <laughs> that one, like, yeah, yeah, thanks. <laughs> Weird flex, but okay. Um, yeah, I use that one on my uh, Tsetsune, my grandma. Uh, I say, Tsetsune, Tsetsune, She's like, ah, how much? I'm like... I don't know, it's like 20 bucks so I can like get lunch and like then some. <laughs> She's like, okay, I'm fine, yeah, it gives 20 bucks. And like my cousins, they see that. They asked her for money, didn't get it. I'm like, the fuck? How come you get money and we don't? I'm like, guess it pays to learn your language, bitch. <laughs> it's a cheap joke, it's a cheap joke. <laughs> um, yeah. You know you're, uh, <laughs> You know your white friend is abundantly racist when you make a joke on their expense and they genocide you. <laughs> it's uh, clear as day. It's, it's can't half genocide. Just uh, just a full genocide. <laughs> it's okay though. I'm allowed to make these jokes because I have a friend who's white. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, very white. Um, we actually, <laughs> uh, I take them hiking. It's great because when it gets dark, they illuminate in the night. It's kind of like a torch. You should get yourself one. You can make many yards. <laughs> uh, you know that, like, there are people in this world wake up knowing they're cops? Like, they, they wake up, they have coffee, knowing very well that they're a bastard. A bastard named Kyle. If you're named Kyle, you're either going to be a cop, arrested by cops, or the son of a cop who named you Kyle. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, speaking about cops, Crazy, uh, crazy shit. Hey, those two dudes on the run. Wild. Um, yeah, but I found out that uh, <laughs> they made a pit stop in uh, Cold Lake, which is where I'm from. And I guess uh, some dude helped them get their truck out. I guess it was like a two-hour endeavor, and they helped them. And then it wasn't until they were gone that they they're like, oh, shit, that was them. Uh, so just know, if you ever get into a sticky situation, I'm from Cold Lake, it'll be all good. <laughs> yeah. Um, I don't know if you guys ever thought about this, <laughs> but things always sound, like, sketchier when you put Russian in front of it. You know, it's like, two kids on the run murdering people. Two Russian kids on the run murdering people. 
It's like, oh, I don't know. They might find me. <laughs> it's like, fuck. Satellites. Russian satellites. <laughs> it's like, yeah, some like face app stealing people's identities. Some Russian face app stealing people's <laughs> identities. I don't want to fuck with this app. <laughs> Knowing damn well that it's Russian. <laughs> Um, this is not uh, to hate on anyone who's Russian here. You're not sketchy. You're just Russian. <laughs> um, yeah, so is anybody here like salmon? Yeah, give it up for the salmon. Woo! I fucking love salmon. Like, it's kind of wild. Like, you would think I'm like a coastal native, but like I'm not. I'm from the prairies. I'm flat-footed. We eat white. Uh, we eat white fish, um, but no, I fucking love salmon. My uh, my ex girlfriend was like, uh, every time I'd like come home after like having a nice meal, and I'd like be kind of like stoked about it. It's like, yeah, I had a really great dinner, and she's like, oh yeah, was it was it salmon? Like, what do you mean? What why why'd you why'd you ask that? She's like, well, I don't know. Every time you've talked about like a really good dinner, it's usually always been salmon. <laughs> <It's> like, uh, <laughs> Fuck, kind of called out. Yeah, it was salmon. Um, I was in a play where I played a salmon. <laughs> yeah, like I literally played a salmon. I learned how to swim upstream. <laughs> yeah, and uh, my name was um, Stakui, which in Honkomelum means uh, salmon, or sockeye, rather. Um, <laughs> but yeah, do you guys know about uh, farmed salmon? Yeah? Well, it's pretty shitty, like, <laughs> uh, just for, like, a number of reasons. Like, I think it can be done uh, ethically, but for the most part, there's a lot of chemicals that go into the food, and, like, uh, so it ends up giving these, like, they, people have said they're, like, zombie fish, like, zombie salmon, um, but they also have sea lice. You guys know that? Farm salmon have sea lice. Um, <laughs> yeah, they got nits. They got fucking bugs. They're loaded. <laughs> and so you know for sure that like a wild salmon grandmother had to pick out her wild salmon kids' nits. <laughs> I fucking told you not to hang out with those farmed fish. <laughs> They're no good. <laughs> Stay away from those spicy salmon rolls. Fuck. <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> it's true. Um... I, uh, yeah, I, like, am trying to fuck with Twitter. Uh, does anyone here fuck with Twitter? <laughs> Couple tweets. Um, <laughs> yeah, I peaked, though, uh, on Twitter when I was, like, 16, living in a group home. Uh, yeah, I don't know, like, I don't even know what I used Twitter for at the time, but I followed Exhibit. I, for sure, I, you know, if I had to do one thing on Twitter, it's follow Exhibit. <laughs> and so I messaged him. I was sitting there. Uh, while well, MTV Cribs was on, yeah, fuck yeah, yeah, it was, it was, I was like sick, and I, so I messaged him, I was like, I was like, yo, Exhibit, can you pimp my home? I could use like five new TVs, <laughs> and he responded, he clapped back, and he said, nah, you don't need me, you need a job, homie. <laughs> I was like, oh, oh, Exhibit tweeted me, like, <laughs> I was like, I don't know if he knows, he just roasted some like 16-year-old kid living in a group home. 
but it was still awesome. I was stoked about it. I was like, I do need a job. Fuck. Are you my dad? Um, <laughs> yeah, I'll, uh, I'll leave on that. <laughs> Thank you very much. <laughs> Our final performer of the evening was Carly Baker. She's a Cree Métis Icelandic writer who lives in unceded Coast Salish territories. Her debut short story collection, Bad Endings, was shortlisted for a bunch of nice awards and won the City of Vancouver Book Award. She also writes book reviews for the Globe and Mail and the Literary Review of Canada. She's currently at work on an autobiographical novel about an ill-fated canoe trip through the Yukon and Northwest Territories. Here's Carly. Good night. Yeah, that's good. Thank you. Hey, Tanshe, Carly de Schnikan Sean, Nia Fide Wigelsisan and Squeu, Nia Nehea Squeu, Nia Icelandic. So, yeah, as a, you may not know this, but as a Cree and uh, Cree Metis and Icelander, I am um, basically like genetically predisposed for dark humor. So this is going to be a little dark. About five years ago now, I, I took a canoe trip through the Yukon and Northwest Territories, as Cole said. And uh, um, we put in uh, at the Ogilvy River and took out at Fort McPherson. So it was 500 kilometers, 21 days. And um, that was five years ago. Uh, a month ago, <laughs> I just realized that the novel I've been writing isn't really about the canoe trip. Um, it's about matriarchs. And this piece doesn't have canoes or matriarchs in it. Yes. Yeah, that's right. But I thought it was pretty good. And uh, so it's kind of a work in progress, but I polished it up for you today. It's like chapter five or something. In the 80s, they were called nervous breakdowns, and they looked like this. A ruthless real estate tycoon loses it all in the stock market one day, chucks his brick phone out of a 20-second story story window, climbs into his Corvette, and drives down the California coastline while the wind carries his tie to the sea. Then he falls in love, and maybe he writes the great American novel. My breakdown did not look like that. A nine-year-old having a nervous breakdown. By the way, I should really, I was going to say this first. Dark humor, so I invite you. I invite you to laugh at me, with me, whatever. Very wise lady, uh, Cree Métis lady named Sam Nock once said that Crees will laugh with you and then tell you our saddest stories. And uh, so please, this is not, it's not that serious. However, a nine-year-old having a nervous breakdown looks like a little jerk. Tantrums, tears, lying, stealing. It's easy to look at a kid like that and decide that what they need is Tough Love, the title of another self-help book mom ate up right around the time things started to fall apart for me. What was it with the 80s and punitive relationship management? I wasn't doing well at school. In second grade, my teacher pointed out to my parents how every other student had finished their parent-teacher night assignments but me. 19 perfect little handwritten poems about a favorite pet or whatever and a space where mine should be. We were so embarrassed, Mom said afterwards. Dad nodded silently. She asked me why I'd made them go to parent-teacher night when there was nothing to show. I'd never considered that. I thought all parents went to parent-teacher nights. 
If I'd known everything was gonna be so hard for you, mom said, I never would have bothered with kids. <laughs> sick, sick burn, right? <laughs> this is probably not what the author of Tough Love had in mind. In third grade, I had a real sadist of a teacher, Sylvie Morin, very much from the Roman Catholic deep shame tradition. When I tested reasonably high on the standardized intelligence test, but still couldn't get my written assignments done on time, this was the kiss of death. Teachers can injure dumb students, but lazy students infuriate them. She seemed to think that she could punish me into writing faster. Don't get me wrong, there were all kinds of other reasons for her to dislike me. I was a jerk, the kind of kid who asked too many questions, ran in the hallways, punched other kids in the stomach, <laughs> stole the chalk and, do, and drew lewd pictures of her in the four square courts. <laughs> it was like I couldn't make the connection between good behavior and la dolce vita. But it wasn't that, really. It seemed to me like I had no choice but to be the bad kid and all because of my penmanship couldn't form stupid curly letters with my stupid hands. To fit five uppercase Fs across one line of those little cream-colored notebooks, such an intricate job to do with such a crude pencil lead. Erasers just smudged the mess across the margin. When they took my erasers away, as if their presence was somehow responsible for my ineptitude, I wet my finger and tried to rub out the mistakes, which left little holes in the paper. And why, I kept asking, what was wrong with printing? That didn't go over well. The teacher, Sylvie, figured that shame was the ticket to my success. Me and this kid, Quinn, who clearly had ADHD long before ADHD was cool. He could not sit still and either couldn't concentrate on his work or would focus so hard that the world disappeared around him. She tied him to his desk with a skipping rope. He laughed about it, we laughed about it, but today it would be Lawsuit City, <laughs> especially after he peed himself while strapped in one day. There's been a lot of urine and feces tonight. I'm really <laughs> stoked about that. Makes me feel right at home. But hey, this was the 80s. Things were different then. For me, the humiliation re regime was a little different, holding up my messy or unfinished work for the class to laugh at, giving out achievement awards to everyone but me making me stand in the corner until, yes, I also peed myself. Then mom was called to pick me up. I was changed into my gym strip and left at the nurse's office until she arrived. I was too afraid to tell mom what circumstances were that led to the accident. Unsurprisingly, Sylvie became much more solicitous after any noticeable damage had been done, so the adults thought I just wasn't excusing myself to go to the bathroom when I needed it. The directive was given that I should be allowed bathroom time whenever I asked, and Sylvie agreed. Meanwhile, Quinn and I forged a friendship around being the class losers. He'd been released to use the bathroom, and I asked to be excused as well. I remember walking behind him in the hallway and watching him go into the boys' room. I was curious what it was like in there, so I followed him in. The light in the boys' room was diffuse and warm. There was a quiet to the washrooms that made them a welcome reprieve from the classrooms, and Quinn obviously felt the same way as me because he was just standing there, looking up at the small frosted glass window. What are you doing here? He asked. I don't know, I said, and this satisfied him. So he took out a red, I took a red rubber ball out of his pocket and tossed it at me. Good bounce in here, he said. 
we spent a few minutes bouncing the ball, trying to touch the ceiling and catch it before it landed in the urinals. <laughs> how do you work those things? I asked. Quinn walked over and flushed one, and I wondered how this design could possibly be any better than a toilet. What are those white pucks? I asked. Don't eat those, Quinn said. That's all I know. <laughs> this seemed at the time like great masculine wisdom. It was a few weeks before Quinn and I got caught coming out of the boys' room. It was close to the end of the day, and I don't think either of us had even considered anyone would miss us while we were in there. Sylvie was waiting outside. By this point, I was used to being in trouble, but I still wilted, wondering what kind of punishment she could possibly come up with for this. What were you doing in there, she asked. We both shrugged, so she hauled us both back to class and told us to wait at the tables we used for group work. When class was dismissed, the parents were already waiting in the hallway. I could feel mom's rage across the room. If she thought parent-teacher day was embarrassing, how was this going to go over? Quinn and I just sat in silence while the adults put their head together, and Mr. Potter, the principal, joined them. When I did look up, I could see that everyone was smiling, which was confusing. Nobody said anything to me until I was in the car on the way home. You and Quinn have fun in there? Dad asked. I don't know. Girls aren't allowed in the boys' room, Mom said. She turned around in her seat and looked at me. So you need to stay out of there, okay? Okay. Do you like Sylvie? Dad asked. She hates us, I said. That was as far as the conversation went, but I didn't get punished, and neither did Quinn. The next weekend, Dad asked me if I wanted to go over to Quinn's house to play. We mostly ran through the sprinkler, which was fine, but without that magic home free of the school bathroom as our shared space, the friendship didn't really have anywhere else to go. Sylvie never mentioned the bathroom incident, but she did ratchet up the classroom humiliation. I never told my folks what was happening, and when she reported to them, it was focused on my behavior, which was undeniably getting worse, and not just at school. I was throwing up every morning, bursting into tears on the regular, and not sleeping at night. Issues with the reoccurring nightmare of a zombie-like bovine with a fleshless bull head atop a backwards cow body. The dreams themselves were varied. Sometimes I was walking through a corn maze or hanging out at the outdoor swimming pool, but at a certain point, the phantom cow would just appear in the distance, on a rooftop or in a tree or something, and watch me. That was it but the feeling of the dreams turned to terror as soon as it appeared, and I'd wake up with my chest heaving. Not wanting to risk Mom's anger, I'd sneak into their room and lay down on the floor next to their bed and eventually fall asleep. They'd find me there in the morning, but I wouldn't tell them why. The climax of all of this is so stupid, it pains me to repeat it. I'd started shoplifting things. First, saltwater taffy from the big open counters at Safeway, and then a Cadbury's Easter cream egg, which my parents promptly smelled on my breath and marched me right over to the store manager to apologize. No harm done, he laughed. Then, for reasons I'll never understand, I decided to steal a pair of white lace fingerless gloves. I had a vague impression that since Madonna wore them in the Like a Virgin video, they must be cool, but under no circumstances did I think a third grader would be allowed to dress like Madonna. Still, I shoved them in my bag, then joined my parents in the Christmas ornaments aisle, and we made it all the way to the door before a secret shopper stopped us. I looked up in her face and realized she lived on our street. She babysat Janie and I when Mom and Dad went out on Friday nights after work. I'm sorry, 
She said to my parents, you should all come with me. Mom looked confused, then looked at me. What did you do? The walk to the manager's office at the back of the store was glacial. I don't even think I was in my body, which at the time I was feeling pretty used to. When we got into the office, the secret shopper closed the door and opened her mouth, and I just started screaming, blue murder. I watched as people's faces morphed from annoyance into fear as I refused to stop, but I couldn't stop. I had so much to say and no idea which words to use. This, finally, got their attention. We all went to a psychologist together, and then I went alone, and then I went to the, met the school psychologist who put me through a battery of tests. The diagnosis was cross-dominance, a minor motor skill issue that made it hard to write, and generalized anxiety disorder, which tends to make everything hard. There were a lot of trips to McDonald's after that, which was definitely how middle-class families showed their, sh their children they were loved in the early 80s. The McDonald's in Mission had a dedicated space for kids' birthdays with a mural of all the McDonald Land characters reverently gathered around the plastic throne where the birthday kid would sit. In the hills, behind Grimace, Ronald, and Mayor McCheese were little hamburgers running free. Of course, the kids who lived in the bigger cities could go to Chuck E. Cheese's for their birthdays and eat pizza with terrifying animatronics, but the Mission McDonald's had a lot to offer. After I was diagnosed, my parents threw me a party with a couple of the neighborhood kids and Quinn. It was the first time I'd ever heard of a party being held there without a birthday to celebrate. Some of the parents were confused and sent their kids along with presents, which I graciously accepted. <laughs> the birthday section was good, but the best thing about the McDonald's was the woman whose job was to just walk around and talk to people, like the greeters in Walmart, but better. She was grandmother age. There is a matriarch in here. She was grandmother age with a round face and small gray eyes. Her polyester uniform was a deep burgundy color and had more flair than the cashiers. She once told me that customers brought her pins from all over the world and the managers let her wear a few on her shift even though it wasn't technically allowed. On my day, the sorry for not realizing you have issues party this woman brought out a butterscotch sundae with a sparkler in it and set it down in front of me. Her flare se selection was mostly Disney World pins that caught the sparkler light and flashed. You must be really special to be celebrated like this, even when it's not your birthday, she said, and squeezed my little hand. I was glad that she thought so, though I wasn't convinced that it was true. It was confusing to go from persona non grata to celebrated community member. Part of me held my breath and waited for the, the phantom cow to show up, but it never did. Not long after that, Dad brought home our first computer, a Commodore 64 with a word processing, processing program called SpeedScript that made it easier to write and print tidy assignments for school. As long as I did my cursive practice, I could write the longer assignments on the computer. This is also when I started writing stories in earnest, stupid stories, kid stuff. The first one I wrote was about dancing pencils that wrote stories by themselves. No useless human hands required. Thank you. That's it. That's the end of the show. Thanks again to all the performers. Mr. Merlot, Delito for having us, Matt Crisco for recording us, CITR for playing us, and you, dear listener, for listening. 
We'll leave you with Mr. Merlot's Love's Going to Get You Again.
You've been listening to Fine on CITR 101.9 FM, broadcasting from unceded Musqueam territory at the University of British Columbia.